Hey, this is Adam. I just wanted to leave a quick note here before the episode starts to let you know that throughout uh, this episode, I referred to the character Bob Lawrence as Bill Lawrence because I'm an idiot. So just wanted to give you that heads up. Anytime you hear me refer to Bill, I am actually uh, referring to the character Bob. Thanks. Welcome to episode five of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. We record each episode immediately after we watch each film. I'm Adam Yurick, along with Jim Massessa. And today's episode features The Man Who Knew Too Much, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. This is the 1934 version, by the way. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and specs. Take us away, Jim. An ordinary British couple vacationing in Switzerland suddenly find themselves embroiled in a case of international intrigue when their daughter is kidnapped by spies plotting a political assassination. This fleet and gripping film is the first of the early thrillers the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, made during the fertile phase of his career spent at the Gaumont British Picture Corporation. Besides affirming Hitchcock's genius, it gave the brilliant Peter Lorre his first English-speaking role as a slithery villain. With its tension and gallows humor, it's pure Hitchcock, and it set the tone for such films as The 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes. As Adam said, this is the 1934 version. This movie is 75 minutes long. It's black and white. It's in 1.33 to 1 aspect ratio, and it was the mono audio. Nice job. Thanks. So, uh, thoughts? What'd you think? Uh, I think just before we start, we have both neither seen this film before. Oh, you never saw this? Nope. Oh, I thought you saw this before. Nope. One of the many Criterion Collection movies that I own and have not watched yet. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I've never seen this before, and I think I've only seen maybe one Hitchcock film before. Um, Which one? Dial M for Murder. Oh, that's I, a good one. That's the only one I can remember. I don't know if I've seen anything else by him. Um, but yeah, I like this. Uh, I liked... I definitely like the story of uh, this film. And I think with most Hitchcock films, again, I've only seen one other one. I feel like the story is really um, the main driver behind the film. You know, it's not like effects, at least not nowadays, maybe at the time. But um, yeah, I really like, I like the story. I think it was a good uh, suspense, good mystery. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I'm a big Hitchcock fan, so I've seen many of his films. Um, I think this is his... I don't know if this is his first film, but it's one of the earliest films that he directed. Um, And as the plot description kind of laid out there, that it led to two of his more famous uh, suspenseful films. Uh, But yeah, I I think uh, for a 1934 film, it was really, really good. There's some things that if you're not used to watching movies from the 30s, you kind of have to take a minute and adjust to the way that it was shot the sound is not you know the dialogue a lot of it was probably recorded afterwards um some of the foley effects are a little odd and they don't sync up right with the film but um overall i definitely really liked it hitchcock is the master of suspense when you say foley effects you're talking about like sound effects yes yeah sorry for us (laughs) amateurs um yeah no i think that the um it definitely at first, it, for me, I found it a little bit hard to kind of quickly like, kind of get to where, you know, okay, what was going to happen? Who are these people? What yeah. are they doing? What are they doing? Um, There's not a lot of setup. They just kind of throw you right in uh, 
they don't you're, you're not really introduced to characters like right which which is good i think a lot of movies do that nowadays where they kind of yeah. they do the opposite of that i'm sorry they they take a while to like set up the characters with this film you're just dropped right into the middle of the story right um and i think that was uh I think that was kind of good, uh, kind of a good aspect. And I thought it was interesting for a movie that b- took place in the early 30s that we were witnessing a woman, you know, and she's like competing against a man and they're in skeet shooting, I guess, is what was going on. Yeah. I mean, I guess that does make sense because the, the either late 20s into the 30s would have been, um, you know, like the roaring 20s women were starting to, uh, obviously they had gotten the right to vote at that point, but that they were starting to become much more accepted into you know, into society. Well, and this is in America either. This is ah, oh, true. Takes yeah. place in Switzerland Good. and, and Great Britain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I, I guess most of the characters are supposed to be English. Um, Lou Lewis, the um, the man who gets shot early on, he's French, I think, or supposed to be French. Yes, um, but I yeah, French. everybody seemed to have a British accent. I don't know if they were necessarily from Britain. Britain. Yeah, I mean, it was shot in. Um, I think at the beginning, I actually made a note because the uh, opening credits started the film, and it said uh, in Great Britain and the Free Irish State. Oh, right. I thought that was kind of that was kind of funny yes. to point out. So I wonder. I think a lot of it was probably shot in Ireland and uh, in in England. Um. But anyway, yeah. So f- from the beginning, I think uh, what we saw. Uh, one of the things I noted right away was a, a, a thing that Hitchcock tends to do a lot, and he's. A, uh, in, in his films, which is he, he'll, he'll do like a really tight close up of something, uh, usually an inanimate object. He tends not to do super, super tight close ups of people's faces. I didn't notice that that much. Um, but uh, the first one we see in here, we see two closes right away, close ups right away at the beginning of the film. One is of the brooch. Really? I think I missed that. Yeah. So, of course. Was that see, when she was handing it to she her? She said, oh, here's the brooch. Okay, yeah, yeah. And we get a close-up of that, and that's the little skier. Right. And then a little bit later on after that, when we are introduced to Peter Laurie's character, Abbott, we get a close-up of the little bell that goes off yeah. on his pocket watch, and we get a close-up of the pocket watch. So that's a that's a Hitchcock thing that, um, uh, you know, he does these close-ups, and he's telling you, this is important, pay attention, like, Make a note that you saw the brooch. Make a note that that bell rang on that watch because it's going to come into play later on in the film, which they both do. That's a Chekhov's gun? Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, look at that. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know what Chekhov's gun is, do you want to explain that? Um, yeah, so on the Enterprise, Chekhov was the uh, main navigator, and this one episode he shoots Kirk with the gun, and so now they refer to that as Chekhov's gun. Oh, is that what that is? Isn't it? No. Uh, Chekhov's gun is from, I don't know, who's who's the Russian guy? Is it uh, Do- Dostoevsky? Did he? He wrote, Do- no, he didn't write this. Dostoevsky. Oh. I don't know. Tell me what the... the so Chekhov's basically thing. it's this whole whole idea of is, is that if you show a gun, it's like a Hitchcock thing. If you show a gun at the beginning of the film, you do close right. with the gun, the gun has to go off by the third act of right, the film. Right, right. But that, that's essentially kind of what it is. It's not the same thing. It's a similar device. Um that's being used here, but it's not really. really yeah. I think thing. that's more obvious in writing sometimes than movies, because in a movie or in film, you can just pan past something with a camera, um, without really drawing attention to it. But in a book, if an author is describing a scene, they physically have to take time to write the description of the room. So if they're 
trying to describe something that you need to know about later on, they have to write it out. So I think that calls more attention to it. Whereas in a film, you can just visually glance past something and it's up to you to remember that it was in that scene. But to your point, Hitchcock really draws those things out here. He's really focused on the brooch. He's, uh, what was the other thing we were just talking about? The watch. Um, the watch. He's really focused watch on the watch. A bell. Um, by the way, I own a pocket watch. I've, do they all have bells? I've never seen No, a and I think that's what makes it interesting is that it's calling it out and you're getting a close up to see what it is. Yeah. And at this time, I mean, this was the early 30s, so sound was really going to I'm going to forget what the year the jazz singer was uh started, which was the first film that had sound. It was a right. talkie is what they what they call them. But it sounds like a sound if you term. watch a lot of early a talkie. Yeah. Oh, do you see you that call guy me out a there? talkie? Yeah, he's one of those talkies. That'd be a good, oh, we should start using that. That's a good okay. slang term. I like that. Yeah, if you, somebody talks too much now, I'm going to start calling him a talkie. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to start doing that too. I mean, I'm the one who's getting called a talkie because I talk too much. So. That's true. But in the 30s, sound plays a much bigger part of the movie. Yeah. I, I think if you watch a lot of 30s movies, it, it's a plot device. They're using sound. It's this newfound thing where, oh, hey, we can put this in here. We can put sound effects into a film. It's not just this you know, quick little fast piano music and going on to support the support the background. They're able to use it as something, and we do see that in this film. There really wasn't a lot of background noise either. Like, especially in the beginning, there's a lot more crowds when they're at, like, the ski resort. And um, when uh, I, there were a couple scenes where somebody came out of a building and walked outside into, like, a crowd, and it was, like, silent. But you can tell the people are supposed to be talking to each other, but it's like watching a play on on stage and, you know, the characters are kind of mouthing words to each other, but you, you don't actually want them to be making noise. You want to hear the lead character. And I feel like maybe just because sound was so new at this point, they just didn't think to, hey, we, when we edit this, we should add crowd murmurs and stuff. Um, so that felt a little weird, but to your point, maybe it's just like a sign of the times with sound being so new. Yeah, like you said, I think that's, the beginning was most noticeable with the skiing accident that yeah, happens yeah. there. And then there is kind of a quick couple quick little cuts. Uh, and when they had the girl that was, it was obviously, um, she's in front of a screen. Or I, yeah. Something. I don't know that it was green screened or it was probably rear projection yeah. that they were doing and she ran across, but it was done so quickly. I, I think for the time it was a, a decent effect. Yeah. And then you do hear that where it's that, that awkward crowd sound because there's no sounds of the, of the people stepping around things. Just the right. voice is like, Oh, 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 there are a couple of weird pop up. parts in that scene too like as soon as uh lewis the skier kind of like crashes i guess the crowd is just like on him like everybody is like on top of him it, it looked like uh they're trying to hurt him or something it's like the guy just crashed like give him a second to yeah there's you know. a lot of points throughout the film where there's a lot of quick edits where time jumps yeah i think when lewis gets shot yeah when they're yep. dancing and all of a sudden it cuts back to uh, uh who is it uh, bill 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 and jill or bob and jill yeah, yeah. lawrence um, when he's with betty at the table and then all of a sudden he's like quickly go to bed i'll take care of this and he like gets up and you're like what like 15 seconds just stopped happening in that film because Nobody really no- around them notices it until he collapses down. So, it, I mean, it is what it is. It's it's just a film from the from the '30s. So editing yeah. is a little a little different, and the the storytelling is a little different from that perspective. Yeah, uh, it's hard to watch a, a film I think from that era now and 
you know, we have so much to compare movies to nowadays. I mean, I, I guess if you grew up in that time period, it's easier to say like, yeah, you know, this was amazing when it came out because nobody was considering these things that we just take for granted now when we watch a film, how realistic things are. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there was definitely, I mean, when he gets shot, first of all, he just like, he doesn't make a sound. He doesn't even, even like, ow, like he just keeps dancing and then he just like falls. Yeah, I made a note of that. Uh, I think probably towards the end of the movie, I wrote down Nobody... the way people react <laughs> to getting shot in this movie. Because there's a, a decent amount, probably a dozen people who get shot in this movie. And they all kind of go stiff and fall backwards. Yes. Everyone dies without a sound is exactly. what I wrote down. There's none of that like, oh, I just got shot and they fall backwards and it's like the bullet impact. and Right. Yeah, I don't know if it was just a lack of understanding of what it looks like when someone gets shot Could there's be. not a lot of footage that actors witnessed like had seen people getting shot right what that looked like yeah or it, i also think it has to go it goes back to stage acting and yes they're just you know they're doing this very over the top kind of collapse yeah uh you know it's just the way it is with uh with that i wanted to go so going back to the very beginning uh, with uh, Jill doing the skeet shooting. Yep. So she loses the battle. And what's inter- what I thought was interesting, the way he kind of set up her almost not caring about her daughter. Right. He's like, oh, here's this brooch and go away. Here's that brooch you wanted. Now will you run away and be quiet? Um, oh, if you, what did I, I wrote down, um, what did she say where she was like, uh, she let missed- that be a lesson to you, uh, never have children. Let that be a lesson to you. Never have any children. Um, and then she said, well, if I lose this game, I'll disown it forever. Now she's being sarcastic. Right. But what, I mean, the girl is like, what, 12, 10 or 12? Yeah. I was... So she's, I mean, like, what, what, what kind of thing is that to say to your kid? She was, um, that daughter looked, I don't know who the actress was, but she looked much older, at least in that, those first few scenes. I thought that was his wife, the daughter. Oh, really? It could have just been the way they had her like dressed. Yeah. Uh, she could have been 15 or 16, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, but her, her acting makes her seem like she's supposed to be much younger, like a child. Um, let's, see, let's see, she was born in 1919. This film came out in 34. So, yeah, she would have been about 15, I guess, to your point. Um, but yeah, they do make Jill seem kind of like a... Um, like she doesn't really notice her daughter very much. She's living that like carefree lifestyle. Right. Um, but I think that's also kind of deliberate then. So when Betty does kind of go missing, um, it's such a, a twist that now Jill is, you know, devastated that her daughter's gone. Right. I think it's playing into the fact that it's versus if you had a parent that was doting on the kid. Right. It probably it didn't leave the opportunity for the kidnapping to occur. Mm, that's true so imagine the scenario you know you're in a scenario a guy just got shot his the 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 wife jill she's tending to the guy because she was dancing with him when he was shot right and then the the bill gets up her father gets up and he's he's just like go to the room he just lets her go on her own right and she gets kidnapped and there's a shooter somewhere around right exactly i mean there's a chaos of the situation but shouldn't you know i think that's just like not really right somebody should stay with the child Right. Uh, yeah, no, that's true. I didn't think about that when that happened. Um, and, and that whole intro scene, like, because it's really almost two, probably three different like time settings. So that's one setting, the whole ski, um, you know, the, the chalet, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, 
And then I think it, it must jump a couple of weeks at least or a month before we get to later on after she's been kidnapped. Yeah, that wasn't very clear to me um, that they just kind of jumped time there and he's in that big apartment or hotel room. Yeah, I think in... that's supposed to be backward. They're where they live. Yeah. That's, but it, so anyway, that first scene in Switzerland, uh, it, it felt very rushed to me, especially from the time he gets shot uh, until like the end of that scene. Uh, a lot is kind of happening that is important later on, um, especially with the brush. So as Lewis is collapsing, he tells Jill something about go up to my room, get the brush, um, bring it. Do you say bring it somewhere or I think he said, uh, yeah, take it to the British consulate. Right. So, I mean, that's huge. That's the main premise of the movie. Uh, and I, I thought it was hilarious that he says to Jill as, as he's collapsing, don't breathe, don't breathe a word to anyone. And her very first thing is she turns around to her husband and says, hey, he just told me this. Bob, listen, no, 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 there's something behind all this. He said you were to go straight to his room, something about a brush. Here's the key, he gave it to me. It's like, what did he just say? Don't tell anyone. Um, My favorite part of that scene, uh, right before he gets, well, right as he gets shot, is that there's a sniper, he gets shot, and he's like, oh, look, and just collapses to the ground. He right. just is this, oh, I've been shot. Something I, I thought of is you kind of see the blood spot on his shirt. Um, nowadays, if if a scene like that happened, you would see, like, spreading blood. You, yes. It would be, like, animated. And I guess maybe at the time they just didn't have a way to really do that or even think about that. Um, because it's just like a red spot. Well, I wonder too, at that time, what, you know, was he maybe being shot with a 22? It had to be a small bullet because it just it put a hole in the window. It didn't really break the glass. Right. Um, and it was quiet enough that nobody else seemed to notice. And he didn't even really notice. Yeah. So, it had to have been a small bullet. Yeah. There's a lot of handgun use, especially I noticed when, um, I wonder what... Like when they're in the end, towards the end of the movie, when they're having the big shootout, yep. uh, the the villains are shooting back at the police with handguns. Yes. So a single they're rifle doing there. a pretty good job, apparently. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's they didn't have any rifles or they, by the time we see them shooting back, that they're out of ammunition for the rifles and all they right. have left are handguns. But when the shooting happens in the Royal Albert Hall, was that a rifle or was that a no, handgun? No, it, that was, was, a, another it was a handgun because it had that big kind of clip on it. And uh, if you notice, it's the same gun that the woman who is part of that gang. Ah, um, right. Yeah, it, she has that. I don't know. It's some type of, I think, like German uh, rifle because you see it a lot in World War II movies. But yeah, it definitely was not a rifle, which made me think they call this guy like what they call him. It wasn't a sniper. They called him the sharpshooter. Right. Um, sharp like, but he's just using like a handgun. And I thought that was really odd. But then again... I, I mean, the rifles they had there were these big rifles, and there's probably no way he could have snuck that into uh, the theater without getting seen because he just walked into the lobby with everybody else. They would have seen this giant rifle. Right. So, uh, but still, I mean, if you're just using a handgun, why why do they need the sharpshooter and not just any person who can shoot a gun? Well, um, but if you're using a handgun at that distance, it would you yeah. need even more of a marksman to make the shot. But he did miss. He did. Sort of. Spoiler. We'll get there. Well, 
presumably you've already watched this movie by the time you're listening to our podcast. Right. So. All of our podcasts spoiler are alerts full of don't exist. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, I wanted to go to back to that scene. I, there, there are a lot of moments in um, this movie. Now, I want to go back to the scene where he's in the apartment. So when we j- make that time jump, okay. Uh, there's the the part where he he being Bill, Bill Lawrence, uh, is being questioned by the cops. Yes, the police, the inspectors. Uh, he um, had a name. They didn't. I don't think they mentioned it then, but later on in the movie, uh, what did they call him? Bishop. I think his name was. I don't know if that was his title or that was his name. Bishop, okay. the guy with the mustache. Yes, him. Yeah. I I liked the kind of over dramatic scene that happened when he goes. Was it because your child had been kidnapped? And, and then it like he quickly turns, you know, Bill Lawrence like quickly turns and, and it's like this big wipe transition and right. like spins around and it cuts to, it cuts to another scene. Yeah, it cuts to another scene. It just seems so ridiculous. And right. then he, and then it goes back to that scene later and they're all leaving. And that's just, it's just such an odd, I don't know. It just, it was just really funny. Like, I'm just like, come on, really? It was so dramatic. So dramatic. He's just drinking like his gin fizz, I think is what it was, not coffee. Especially since he's trying to pretend like his daughter wasn't kidnapped. And then as soon as the guy says kidnapped, uh, he like spins around and like, <gasps> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of. Like, I, I didn't understand that reaction. Yeah, you know, the description good. of this movie does say it's, uh, what is it, gallows humor. Um, so maybe, maybe there's, that was supposed to be like a humorous part. I don't know. I guess to me, the gallows humor came into play uh, the two scenes I can think of. One, the dentist scene. Where he's kind of like the the, the he's the um was that Clive. supposed to be funny? No, the Clive the when he when he sends his friend in to kind of like get his tooth like tooth looked at and he comes out and his tooth been removed yeah and he's kind of like you know he he goes he's like oh, stay out here and keep your mouth shut well he needs to have his tooth pulled so of course he's gonna keep his mouth shut yeah and there was a scene later where the bishop bishop not the bishop but bishop um the man with the mustache um they're doing the shootout and he's in that guy's like little store general store and yeah. he kind of steals a piece of candy. Oh, I didn't and the guy's like looking at him and he's like, he just like takes the candy and doesn't even look at him. And the, the shop owner kind of like looks at him and is like, are you kidding me? Did you steal my candy? That whole part seems a little weird because he's like directing all his officers in like a shootout and he's just sipping tea and walking around like yeah, he, in a saucer. He's not just like, <laughs> you know, he's got both hands free. He's not holding a gun or anything. Um, but there was humor, I think, earlier on at the dance um, before the shootout where Bill kind of takes his wife's knitting and ties the loop. Yes, yeah, I, that was actually really funny. I yeah, so her her knitting is unraveling as everyone dances around, uh, which I will say my mother is a big knitter, and as soon as he starts unraveling that, it, you know, I'm thinking like, oh man, that guy is in trouble. Like, <laughs> I don't know. But, well, I, I thought it was a great device to keep you distracted from, like you're, you're watching this, you're kind of laughing, and right. like, oh, this is funny, everyone's getting tangled up. And then they kind of point and say, "Oh, hey, it's on your back, back of your 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 jacket." And then within like a, a second or two, he gets shot. Right. So I think that's kind of like it's a great thing that Hitchcock does, where he kind of he distracts you from what's going on, and then boom, you get hit with this crazy, you know, moment that happens in in the film that you weren't expecting. It's like those commercials now, where uh, you know, like all the teens are driving in a car and having a good time. The bam, oh, yeah. they get hit. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. you don't see it coming. No, you don't. I mean, now you do because every time you see one of those scenes, you're just you're wait, like, yeah. you can see the camera angle something's and you're like, happen. something's going to happen. And now I feel like I've seen commercials where they've done the opposite, where they have the shot going that way. It's that like wide shot on the driver from the pass from the passenger seat, and yeah. uh, you have the you can see the it's the background's clear. You're like, oh, this person's going to get t boned. Uh, anything else from that 
early Switzerland whole time now, period or I didn't really I think we yeah, kind of covered I think that we kind of covered that yeah yeah so after so after that scene now we're back at the home uh you talked about Bishop coming in and kind of interviewing them and they jumped to Clive and the toy trains I didn't really get is Clive just their friend I thought he was their butler at first um because he like answered the door uh I didn't really understand his relationship in to them in the movie they don't really explain a lot of that maybe he was like his brother I don't I don't know because they didn't really explain Lewis in the beginning either. And at first I thought that was Jill's husband, but then Bob says something like, oh, my wife's dancing with another man. Like, oh, all right, so that's her husband. Um, yeah, again, there wasn't a lot of, like, setup with these characters. You're just kind of thrown in with them. Um, yeah, so the Lawrences choose not to give the paper to the police. Um, right, which the paper, by the way, says a specific time and event Something's going to happen at the Royal Albert Hall. Did it say that or did, did it say, say, say I thought it, it said um, the dentists. Oh, name. the de- I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. I, I was confused. It does say uh, barber. barber. Right. Right. The barber. Because I thought it was a barber slash dentist shop. Right. But really the dentist's name was Barber, but B-A-R-B-O-R, not B-A-R-B-E-R. Right. And let's talk, that, that scene was really, really weird to me just on a couple from a couple different points because it was like, I don't know. It's just kind of odd. He's like, Oh, my tooth hurts. And he's like, which one? And then he's doing the, the, the funny, I think what was funny about that where he's talking, the dentist is talking to him. He's got his fingers in his mouth and he's got like the tools yeah. in there. He's trying to like talk back to him. And for some, some weird way, the dentist knows that this guy isn't like, there's something weird going on because he goes and immediately tries to put the uh, anesthesia on his face. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Bill Lawrence develops this insane Hulk-like strength and just quickly strangles him and, like, pulls him, like, stands up and then pulls him down by the throat and then manages to force the anesthesia. I'm, like, I'm sitting there just, like, I made a note and I was, was just, a like, pretty weak all of a struggle, sudden, Bill though. is gigantic, like, hugely strong. Like, yeah. he didn't even fight back at all. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. Like, I'm like the dentist isn't really, like, fighting. It was kind of that overacting of, I'm so surprised. Somebody's trying to strangle me. Yeah. Uh, the closer to his face and the, th- the hand like slowly goes up to his throat and he's just like, <gasps> did you notice the glasses he was wearing did not have arms? Oh no. Yeah. It was just like glasses that was like, that Clive too, who also had a monocle yeah. that didn't have a string. It was just a P it was like a piece of glass. Yeah. That, yeah. That was, I guess kinda... that's how glasses were. I don't know. There were I, no... don't know. I mean, that was the style I've seen the glasses with no, cause they like pinch on the yeah. nose. They're like spring loaded. I've seen that, that in TV and, and yeah, movies yeah. before. I never saw a monocle that you just like shove into your eye and well, I've seen monocles like that where, but it has like a, a metal rim around it. Right. It's, it's clear. And you clip it on something. So you don't glass. Right. That was, yeah, that was kind of odd to me. They had that. I was just like, in general, like if you're going to wear one lens, just put a piece of glass over the other eye and have it setting there. Do you really want to like pinch your eye shut the whole, I don't know. People not realize that was a bad decision. Uh, yeah. The other thing about the dentist though, like maybe that was a different time period, but they just walk right into a dentist shop at night and are like, hey, my tooth hurts. Okay, I'll take you. Well, so probably say dentist's office, not what a did shop. I say? Dentist shop? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I yeah. mean, maybe if it's a shop, if it's a dentist shop, it could be open 24-7. That's true. Again, you don't know how what, what time of day it is. Like, based on that, it, it, looked like, it looked like it was, I mean, the way that they set up the film, it's harder to tell because of the way that it's lit and it's the 30s. Yeah. It, it could have been 11 o'clock at night. It could have been 6 o'clock at night. You just don't really know. 
so I, I I didn't really have a problem with them. Like and and again, it's a in this like town. I feel like during that time period, there was less stringent. Like those people were kind of expected to be on call, maybe. Could be, yeah, that's true. And, he, and his office kind of looks a little run down. So, yeah, him being I a skeevy dentist, there. I mean, it's the place where you're going to have two villains meet and hot. You're having, a, you know, Peter Laurie's character uh, kind of come in and 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 kind of hide there. And we can talk about Peter Laurie for a second because he I feel like he's the perfect villain. Like during that time period, he was like this perfect guy to be used for any villain role. He has. Uh, you know, one, this was his, the, 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 uh, Criterion Collection noted that this was his first English speaking role. And boy, he could is. you not tell? <laughs> well, he, no, his English was, was good. It was pretty smooth. Yeah. And I, and I think it's not, he's not supposed to be in here pretending to be a British person. He, it makes him more villainous to yeah. have that German accent. He is German and he just looks He's just one of those. He he has this like Steve Buscemi quality to him, That's but Steve Buscemi does. comes off like goofy looking. Yeah. But Peter Laurie is just like so creepy and like maniacal. That well, they he gave just, him a scar. They gave him a scar and the and like the um what I would assume is like a what gray hair. Yeah. Uh, like that big stripe in his hair. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that's just you just set him off and he just has his like teeth are kind of really spaced far apart. Uh, he's just has this weird laugh. <laughs> His his voice is just you can't quite grasp what he's like you can just barely tell what he what he's saying yeah and that's just like perfect because you you have to pay attention to him then and he's always kind of got that like sly gr- not like a grin but like I don't know like a smirk almost on his face like he's just up to no good I don't know that's kind of how he is in all his movies I would say but yeah I mean the one movie he probably Casablanca I think Casablanca is probably his yeah. most famous role to an American audience yeah, like, yeah. To, to the average public I guess you would say uh he was in a great movie that's also a Criterion Collection movie which is on our list which we'll get to at some point uh M by uh oh. Fritz Lang another movie it was the very first movie that Fritz Lang used sound and plays a major plot device in that film so uh at another future podcast episode we will hit up that movie so uh peter laurie's character is uh what was his name abbott is that his name yeah or yeah abbott uh hey abbott so he is also at in switzerland with them in the beginning right yes he is yeah he's he has the watch all, all of so all of the main characters throughout this movie were all in switzerland together in the beginning which just seemed strange to me like it didn't need to be that way well he was a friend of the sharpshooter right i guess that's just cool i don't know well i mean think of it that they're all in there and i imagine that they're there because um maybe maybe they're just there for with the sharpshooter but lewis is the one spying on yeah peter laurie's character abbott and the sharpshooter and He's like intercepted that. So how did they know? I think they know. But so uh, Betty's kidnapped there in in Switzerland. Right. So they must have, uh, Abbott and the sharpshooter and his whole gang must have known that the Lawrences found that paper uh, or else why bother kidnapping their daughter? But it seemed like even the police didn't know that they had the paper. So how did Abbott and his gang know that? Um, they had found the brush and, and stole the paper. I don't know. Unless they just were taking a guess and kidnapped the daughter anyway. Um, I don't know. Well, you saw Bill Lawrence come out of the hotel room 
Yeah, and he ran into somebody I, in the hall. Who which did... I believe that was the sharpshooter. Oh, okay. So I think that's how he, so they he just saw, knew. they knew that he, and they assumed that... Um, they were friends with Lewis anyway. Right, and that why was this guy up in his room? Oh, and I, maybe they know that he had made a note somehow or that he had stolen a message. Right. I, I, maybe that's where we're lost here is that the, the note wasn't written by Lewis, but was a piece of, was a note stolen by Lewis from them. Like maybe that mm. was a message passed on and uh, he was hiding it in there. Yeah, that makes sense. And that to me is what, that's what I thought was happening, and it makes more sense to me as to you know why why they were going after him. Yeah, it must have been stolen because it was it was on letterhead from the church. Was was that, or did he draw the sun on that paper? Oh, you know, I didn't notice that. That's uh, at the top of the page. It was a sun, like a half sun, mm-hmm. uh, and that's like the logo of the tabernacle of the sun, which they go to later on. Oh. Um, yeah, so then that's definitely a note that he stole. Okay. Yeah, that would make sense. And I, I missed um, what was on the letterhead. So, yeah, but yeah, now that makes sense that it was he stole the note, right, and was hiding it and trying to pass it off as like intelligence. Because when they leave the barber shop or the dentist shop of barber, <laughs> dentist shop, the dentist's office. When they leave the dentist's office, he pulls the note out later and he holds it up and he sees that tabernacle of the sun and he's looking at the logo of the sun and looking at the sign and then they go into the that church, right, or. I don't know what it was. Yeah, which was to be. the fourth, um, the fourth circle was the. It was like some sort of like weird cult or something. I yeah, don't know what that was. Going I didn't on. really like. What was the? If you're having like a front for like a underground assassination ring, that's a really weird front to like. You want to blend in, like don't have a weird. Uh, yeah, for real. I I I don't know what. What was also weird to me was when they're kind of done with the little um, service. Hip, yeah, or, hypnosis that she does to yeah. Clive. She's like, if you're not in the fourth circle, please leave. And everyone but like two people get up and walk. Well, what were those people doing there? Well, if you noticed, so when they were doing that scene, I'm like, there's no men in this crowd. But there were. There were actually four men and they were all the bad guys sitting in the front row. Uh, So everybody who got up to leave were the women except for the the leader who was a woman and the like thug, the woman who – puts a gun to his back and says like, okay. you're not going to leave your friend here. Are you? Uh, yeah. Everybody else who left was a woman. I don't know if that mm. meant anything. It just seemed kind of strange. I did like at when they, so they, um, Bill and Clive walk into that and they're kind of sitting there and they're singing the they're songs. S- being sung, and they're like kind of singing like something's about to happen. This isn't good. Right. They're like singing to each other to try to have a conversation. Was that to supposed to be it. like humor or were they, I think it was supposed to be funny. Like, like again, instead of just, Hey Adam, like, Something weird's going on in here. They were like, hey, Adam, something. They're yeah, supposed like to be that. singing along with, like, the song that everyone's singing, but they obviously aren't. What is the wrong of men? I don't see what you mean. I don't know. You're try again trying not to draw attention to yourself. Don't sing what you're saying. Yeah. I don't know. That, like, maybe that was like part of the the sounds like they're showing off. Hey, look, I, this movie I, has sound. I think that to us that's them singing sounded so much louder than what it was intended to be because the whole crowd was singing. Okay. The whole it was like, you know, it was a hymn being sung. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the idea is that it just 
mixing wise, it just sounded a lot louder to us, but it really, it really wasn't. But yeah, I noted that done. I think that, that that's part of that gallows humor that I just don't think is as it wasn't as well acted as you will you will see later on yeah. in Hitchcock films yeah. and other films. Uh, I just think that's the the era. It I think that during that time we had a lot of it would have been like humor was slapstick. Yeah, because humor had to be exaggerated. You had like the Charlie Chaplin style stuff, right? right. And so the subtle humor wordplay. I mean, this is something that's new, rel- relatively new. Like, I mean, audio and film has only happened for you know, I mean, less than ten years. Yeah. So, and so, there Hitchcock remade this movie like twenty twenty two years later. Uh, so, and I believe he says there was an interview where he said something like. When he made this, this first version, it was, uh, you know, the movie, not of an amateur, but it was, you know, he wasn't saying it was in a bad way, just like this was like a, a, uh, somebody coming into their craft. And when he made it 22 years later, it was the work of a professional. So, right. you know, I, I would say if you're a director and you remake your own movie, uh, that kind of says something to what you, you know, maybe you thought there were a lot of missed opportunities in that first movie or, you know, I don't know. Not that the acting was bad in this, but I think to your point, you know, there's a lot of the sound maybe just wasn't mixed right at the time because there was no technology for that or I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I would look at it as he liked the story. Yeah. And now that he, he I mean, at that time period, 50s, he he was pretty much to the height of his, I guess it would be, oh, yeah, yeah. What the if, height of his career would have been in the 50s. Uh, so why not remake? Like, oh, I had this great story. I didn't really, it was like one of the first films I directed. I, I didn't really, it didn't didn't execute it properly. So let me yeah. redo it again. And you had Jimmy Stewart in the, in the one that right, was done right, in 56. Right. So, I mean, that you're going to get, it's like, oh, I have a second chance at this. Uh, I'm trying to think if anybody else, like nowadays, has done that, where a director remade their own movie. Uh, I mean, I guess you can kind of say, uh, George Lucas remade Star Wars, but, uh, no, I, it's not really, I was, yeah. it's not the same. I mean, I, I can't think of a mo- uh, director who actually remade, oh, you know what? Actually, uh, George Lucas did that. He, he did a student THX. film, THX 1138. He remade it as a feature film. It was an almost feature length film that he made in film school. Oh, I think okay. with Robert Duvall. Yeah. And then he remade it. At, he got funding for it and remade it as a feature film, again, with Robert Duvall in the starring role. And then uh, in the 2000s... He, like, re-edited yeah, he, it? He, re- he did it with a lot of extra effects and stuff like I that. I think that's the one I saw because when uh, when he's, like, riding the motorcycle at the end, like, escaping, yeah. it was way CGI'd. And I'm like, there's no way they made this in the 70s. Um, one thing I did want to... Um, talk about speaking of george lucas because now we're on this topic okay uh is see where this goes the transition the transition that was used the most in this film is what's called a wipe transition where the screen wipes across into a new thing and that was a transition that was intentionally used by george lucas during for a lot of scenes in star wars uh and it was used i think a couple times in raiders of the lost ark but primarily in Star Wars, uh, I-, I can think of like a handful of times that it was used. Interesting. In uh, yeah, I did notice, um, I think when they were doing the model train, might have been the first time they did that wipe, uh, going from Bill Lawrence's like uh, 
is like, surprise, she's been kidnapped to the train. And it kind of like, it wiped left to right following the train as it was moving. Um, and it, when I saw that, it made me wonder like, oh, is this like, maybe that's like the first time people ever did a wipe. I don't know. No, I mean, it was a, con- that, that's an old, old school well, this is an old like, transition. Film. Yeah, it was just the way the editing at the time was the options that they had. Yeah. Um, so if we get to like the climax of the movie when they're in the Royal, Royal Albert Hall, yeah. uh, I think that's really, to me, I'm sitting here going like, I'm like, oh, this is perfect. The way that Hitchcock built the suspense, I think in that scene was was great. It was, a sl- was kind of like a slow moving suspense. Right. We had Jill sit down and it's like looking at her face and she's looking around. She's trying to determine, okay, who who's the target? Where's the shooter going to be? Right, she sees right. the empty box with the curtain kind of moving. Because she we doesn't, the music she doesn't know who the target is. No, we, well, I think we kind of do as the we audience. Kinda, yeah, we do, and I think when she sees the royal banner and like that's yeah. obvious. Okay, obviously it's going to be that guy. He's he's the he's the important person here, and we know the point in the song in which the shot is going to happen. Right, and she doesn't. Correct, but she kind of looking at her face. You can almost read that she she feels it coming on. Because you can see her face getting more and more like distraught as right. we get to that point. I think she starts to cry at one point. Yeah. And it was really good because the, the camera kind of moves in on her face and you're seeing the instrumentation playing. And for us, the signal is I love the close ups of the, the different percussion pieces getting yeah, ready getting and kind of like ready. getting there. And you're like, all right, it's coming. It's coming. And Hitchcock does such a great job of like cutting back and it's like building that up. And OK, now the percussion is ready. It's going to happen. And then we kind of cut to the gun, and there's the scream and the shot. And we see the guy slump. We don't really know what's happened. Where did right. the scream come from? And then it's the everyone order? running yeah. out. And uh, you know, then we find out that the scream is what caused him to miss. Yes. And the guy wasn't really shot. Uh, Which is ironic. So in the beginning of the movie... Jill is trying to shoot at the the skeet shooting and she misses and blames it on her daughter kind of talking. But really, I think it was the sound of um, Abbott's clock going off his watch. So again, she misses because of a sound. And then later her sound causes the sharpshooter to miss his shot. So it kind of brings it back around to the beginning. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's Again, like I said, with the watch and the sound, because then that comes back into play at the end when the shootout's over and the cops are coming in and Peter Laurie's character is hiding behind the door and his watch dings. Which, yeah, I'm assuming it's dinging for the top of the hour. Right. And then he shoots himself. Oh, he shot himself? I thought the cops shot him through the door. Okay, maybe they shot him through the door. Because they're all looking at the door because they hear the sound. They all turn and look. And then... uh, I guess I was confused because I I thought he shot himself, but... You might be right because I I heard the gunshot, but I didn't see it like a bullet hole in the door. Yeah, that's where I didn't see it because we did see like bullet impacts and breaking through the door in earlier scenes. But I didn't... It wasn't obvious that that, uh, that he was shot by someone else. I thought he shot himself. That might make more sense because I wrote down, uh, if you're trying to hide, don't smoke a lit cigarette while you're hiding behind a door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but maybe that was like, he, he knows he's going to shoot himself. So he just like smokes the last cigarette and then shot himself. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's a kind of a common, uh, common theme. I wonder too, I've seen the device of like, Oh, we're going to use this loud music to cover something else happening. Yeah. And I, 
it'd be interesting to know if that is like the origin of that. Like if hmm. that was the original story, like the original, uh, this was the original movie where that kind of occurred. I've seen it in TV episodes. Um, there was an episode of the show Leverage. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Uh, good show. It's currently on Netflix. Uh, it's been off for a few years now, but it's a um, kind of a uh, like an Ocean's Eleven type show where you have this band of thieves, but they're kind of doing the, the whole show is they're, they're they're essentially like a group of Robin Hood thieves, right? right? Doing... They help people get leverage. exactly. And there's an episode where they uh, are trying to get into a vault uh, that's under a concert hall, and it's gonna they're gonna play the um, 1812 Overture, I believe yeah i think i could be wrong no william tell no there's um oh i'm sorry it's uh shazara shazara sod or i forget how to pronounce it it's a anyway there's a part in which there's like a lot of uh loud music and stuff like that that occurs and they need to turn off the the alarms in the vault to be able to do it and that's how they they use that as cover to go in and steal something so interesting um going back to that church real quick uh what did you think of the big fight in the oh I, yeah i complete i made a note of that the throwing the chairs at each other that was easily the most ridiculous thing and i actually the more i watched it was that supposed to be humorous the more i thought that it was supposed to be ridiculous and completely the they they broke every single chair in that room and there were like 30 40 chairs there were room. and they're just like throwing them around like they were made of balsa wood like yeah, I wrote down, don't bring a gun to a chair fight. Right. Um, At any moment there, I think Peter Lorre, like they had, there were guns there. They could have shot him and it would have been over. The movie would have been done. And there's a couple of scenes where like a chair like bounces off somebody's head. It's like they don't even feel it. Right. And then somehow he manages to, Bill manages to get around the whole other side of where the chair, what, you know, because he's, he's on one end of the church. Everyone's on the other side. They're throwing chairs. It's like they're playing dodgeball with chairs. Yeah. And then somehow he manages to, he throws a chair, a guy goes down. And then he manages to get back on the opposite side where all the villains were to try to get Betty out of the was it Betty or Clive? Clive, or, yeah, Clive he, to get out. Yeah, first, he, he throws out. a chair at Clive, right. and to wake him up, he right. like hits him with a chair. And then, so he's, somehow he's getting up there to get him out, and then he gets hit in the head with a chair, and that's what knocks him down. Even yeah. though earlier he hit someone else in the head with the chair, and that didn't knock them down. It yeah. was just completely ridiculous. <laughs> Meanwhile. Abbott, Peter Lurie's character, is just standing on the side, smoking a cigarette, watching this happen, yeah. not participating. He looks like he's having a laugh at it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. If I got hit with one of those chairs, I'd probably not be getting up. But again, they, I don't know, they busted every chair in that place. And I, and I thought, um, to kind of bring it, so we get back to the scene where um, he's, uh, to where we're having the shootout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they're kind of doing their thing and they're, they're like going back, they're running on it. They're running low on ammunition. Uh, the sister, the woman who kind of conducts the ceremony, she gets shot yep. and, of course, just slumps to the ground, as we've seen everyone do. And that's like Peter Laurie's. I think that's the point. You see him kind of break and yeah. pick up the gun. He's just shooting out into the into the crowd. Uh, and then Bill is able to get out of the room and get Betty out, and they're kind of getting up the stairs. And then the sharpshooter sees that, shoots him in the wrist, and he starts to bleed pretty heavily. Yeah, he grabs his Later arm. Later on, though, we see his arm, and there's no blood anywhere. Well, yeah. But then, of course, we have the sharpshooters on the roof with Betty kind of getting, and then Jill's there in the crowd, and the cop is kind of like, oh, "I'm not gonna be able to take that shot. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit her." And then immediately, I was like, "Ah, oh, she's gonna take the gun." Like it was just like, "I, I could write this." Yeah. And and she shoots, she shoots him. They don't like, show her actually taking the gun because you know you see you see uh, the sharpshooter get shot. And then they show Jill with the no. Smoking you do gun. see her grab the gun from him. Do you? You do. All right. Yeah, she grabs the gun. I didn't see that part. And then the next thing you see, you, you, you see a close up of the sharpshooter 
in the gunshot. He reacts, falls down, and then she's kind of like holding the gun, smoking next to her side. Well, that's just bad police work to let a distraught mother next to you grab the rifle out of your hand. I don't know. Like, I mean, that was a pretty big payoff to have that come full, the plot come full circle like that. Starts with the skeet shooting competition. The sharpshooter beats her, and then she ends up killing the sharpshooter at the end. Because she's a great marksman. Yeah, I mean, it's really... A markswoman. It's like three points because there's the the shooting in the beginning. There's the shooting in the hall where kind of she messes up his shot and then she shoots him at the end. So it kind of... I don't know. It's like, what did uh, Bill even really need to be in this at all? Um, not Bill, Bob. Bob and Jill. Like, uh, he's doing all this like detective work to try to find his daughter, but really Jill's the one who kind of saves the day in the end. Oh. Yeah, I mean, he. I think Bill was kind of that like bumbling dad. Yeah, but he think, did find the information. If he hadn't called, well, he didn't call Jill. Clive called Jill to tell her to go to the concert. Right. Um, and if she hadn't, they would have never found their daughter. Yeah, I don't know. I guess there were equal parts bumbling and equal parts, uh, quote unquote, brave. Um. But yeah, I don't know. Any final thoughts uh, overall? Yeah, uh, overall, I, it was a great, great movie. Uh, I definitely am going to put the uh, newer version, the 56 version, The Man Who Knew Too Much, on my list of movies to watch. It is not a Criterion Collection okay, film, unfortunately, um, but maybe at some point it will be released. There I wonder are, why they picked this one. There's over. a handful of Hitchcock films that are Criterion Collection, and then there's a decent amount of of movies like Rear Window and Psycho and these big films that are not uh, Criterion Collection films. I think that has to do with the studio. Criterion, of course, has to get the distribution rights for the Blu-ray. The two movies that are on the back there, The 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes, are two of the Criterion movies that are in my collection. That's probably why they called them out. There was a box set uh, of the Blu-rays and and those uh, there was a fourth movie, and I can't remember the name of it. Oh, um, Foreign Correspondent. Was the other was the fourth movie in the box set? Uh, um, you know, one last thing I wrote down, uh, just kind of reminding me. This movie reminded me of a Woody Allen movie uh, called Shadows and Fog, which is also a black and white movie. And it's um, there's like a serial strangler on the loose, mm. um, and it's kind of he's like a kind of a bumbling guy who's gets caught up in trying to catch the strangler. I think it starred John Cusack. Hmm. Um, I haven't seen that shadow. What was it? Shadow? Shadows and fog. Shadows and fog. All right. Uh, check that and out. there's also a lot of like kind of cameo, uh, like any Woody Allen movie. There's a lot of people with, right. um, the lady who does uh, Marge, Marge Simpson's voice. Oh, right. Yeah, name, yeah. But she's in, I know. yeah, she was in, um, sleepless in Seattle, I think too. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Was, was that the girl does Lisa's voice? No, it wasn't the girl does Lisa's okay. voice. It was the Marge Simpson actress um just wanted to call out i don't think i mentioned this in the beginning when i was reading the description of this movie but this is number 643 in the criterion collection so if you're following along at home all right so that's it for this episode of criterion on the couch you can find the show notes at criterion on the slash the man who knew too much next time we'll be discussing the west anderson film the royal tenenbaums don't forget to check us out on facebook on twitter we're at criterion couch and on Instagram, we are at Criterion on the Couch. I'm Adam Yurick with Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.